and uh, kind of acknowledge what I think can be a slight uh, danger is probably too strong a word, uh, but a danger uh, that we can face as we go through these stories in the Old Testament of uh, the patriarchs. Uh, the stories we encounter are often called uh, the stories of the heroes of faith. Is kind of one of the terms we have heard a lot growing up. It's the way we talked about it. It was people we admired. We had uh, felt board stories that we looked at as kids that kind of told their stories and, and these cool paintings on the walls. And we just kind of really admired uh, these folks, which is great. I understand that phrase. I understand the idea that they are heroes of the faith. But I do think that can be slightly problematic, right? If we valorize uh, the featured characters of this story in a big enough way, it can do some injustice to them and even to us as we try to approach these stories, right? Um, I, gr- I grew up where I felt like we kind of airbrushed over the faults of these folks. Uh, we kind of just kind of blew right past those things and just kind of lifted them up for the big things that were there. And, uh, and if we do that, we airbrush those things away, you can tend to get disconnected from them because they're not like us, right? They are heroes. They do heroic things. And I don't know about you, but on most days, 99.9% of the time, I don't feel super heroic. And so uh, you tend to feel this distance of like, yeah, that's fine for them then, but what does it have to do with me now, right? If we mythologize them, if we deify the human involved, then we can miss much of the richness of the story and where it might intersect with our lives. So the stories the next few weeks are, going to, are not about um, Abraham's valor or heroism necessarily, right? Um, they're about God's faithfulness. And that's the key thing to remember. Uh, they're about God's faithfulness. If anything, uh, we're going to see, not so much this week, but in the coming weeks, we're going to see Abraham honestly kind of gets in the way a lot. Uh, a lot of God's faithfulness is in spite of Abraham, not because of him. Um, it's not that he's so thoroughly different and holy that he accomplishes miraculous things. In fact, nothing is said about him being special in any way as to be chosen by God. We are going to be reading a story of a God choosing to work through a very flawed human being's family. And it's God's choice to do that. God chooses to make a promise to him and his family. Uh, and notice at this point, it's not a covenant, which is what will come in later on with God and God's people It's not a covenant because Abraham doesn't really have any requirements put on him. There's no Abraham side of the deal in this thing. Uh, There's nothing special about him. Covenants come later. This is just a choice God makes, a promise God makes to someone and to that person's family. Uh, A promise that demonstrates God's fidelity. Uh, It's a demonstration of God's unrelenting intent to bless a world that continually goes off the rails through someone and their uh, lineage. So, That's what's happening here. Um, Abraham, like us, shows flashes of jaw-dropping courage at times, but also moments of glowing cowardice. Um, So before anything else, let's get ourselves out of the hero worship business. Uh, Let's allow Abraham to be every bit as brave and faithful and stupid and selfish and flawed as all of us human beings can be from time to time, right? Don't gloss him up. Uh, or we'll risk admiring him from a distance instead of entering into this story with him. So let's kind of give ourselves that permission to look honestly at the characters involved over these coming weeks. Um, okay, with that said, we're going to be actually in Genesis 12, and I know that's a big jump. We are literally uh, like in the beginning, Genesis 1 last week, and the lectionary jumps to 12. A few things have happened in those verses. I hope you have read them. I hope you are familiar with them. But this is where we're at. So we're starting the story of Abraham. This is kind of the, the calling of Abraham. Uh, and now, at this point, still called Abram. 
So we're in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9, and that's where we're going to spend our time tonight. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord has told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the far east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Let's just start with this and go ahead and own something up front. If nothing else, the story of Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah soon, however you want to say it, uh, is an amazing comeback story. It's a last-minute Hail Mary. It is an incredible story. It's two childless senior adults suddenly going off to a new place to parent a great nation. Hard to think of a better late-game comeback story than that. We certainly didn't have one in Hagsburg today. Now granted, uh, recently Martha Stewart went from prison to the cover of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, which is pretty impressive for an 81-year-old. Real impressive. Probably more impressive than anything I'll accomplish in my life. But she didn't use that cover shoot to make a public announcement about her pregnancy. Now that, (laughs) that would have been a comeback story. In fact, I tried to talk the other pastors uh, in, in the group I meet with each week who have uh, more senior adults in their group to get one of the senior adult women to come up and give a very sincere announcement uh, that would lead to her telling everyone she was pregnant just to get a big laugh in the room and to kind of talk about how funny this would have been. None of them were willing to do it. I'm just saying uh, maybe our pastors could be a little more brave in this town. Um, okay. So maybe one of the lessons that we can glean from this is that it is never too late, Right? And this, is a, this runs against counter to our nature, right? As we get older, our field of vision tends to narrow, not just literally, although mine is, uh, but this wide world of possibilities we have when we are young becomes smaller and smaller, and the buffet has less items to choose from, and we can't imagine leaving this spot anymore, right? There's obligations, there's families, there's responsibilities, all the stuff that you have gathered your entire life that help predict where you're going to be and what you're going to do. I mean, is there anything Worse than packing up all your stuff and moving from the place where you are really settled. I mean, the idea of moving out of the house that we've been in for over 10 years right now gives me hives to think about it. We're not going to. I don't want to. You're going to have to kick me out of that place. And yet here they are. Two geriatrics mysteriously promised an impossible lineage and asked to pack up and move to a foreign land. Now, Abraham will not always show courage, 
In fact, sometimes he will be quite a coward in his story. But this took some guts, the kind of guts I do not possess. This is not just getting a better job in another city and then that new job sends some vans to pack you up and set you off. This is choosing to become an immigrant when your home was perfectly safe and perfectly fine. This is hard traveling. This is uh, no uh, system of maps. This is no iPhone. This is no car. This is packing up your stuff, exposing yourself to nature and to enemies to go someplace that you don't even know about and have never been. This is a bold step of faith based on an unrealized and far-fetched promise that only at this point Abram has heard, which may arguably make uh, Sarai even more heroic in this story than Abram because she's going and she didn't even hear this from God. It's a big step. Now, does this mean that God is going to ask you to do some kind of big, massive life change in your old age? I don't know. Probably not, I would guess. But maybe it should mean that we shouldn't be so quick to eliminate the possibility of an unexpected calling from God. Maybe there's still something out there you haven't even thought of yet. We shouldn't close that door. I believe in those unexpected uh, places where you end up. After all, I grew up in South Florida, and here I am in South Mississippi. Didn't even know this place existed, and now it's home. Be open to what God has for you. But it's not just a big move for Abraham, right? This story in this part of the scriptures gets us to a big shift that the calling of Abraham represents for the entire story of Genesis. It's not just a big move for him. It's a big move for God and how God is acting in the world. It's a hinge moment in the narrative where the book moves from grand to small, from universal to particular. The first 11 chapters, only one of which we covered in the lectionary for some reason, but the first 11 chapters, we would be reading stories about creation, the fall, worldwide floods, the scattering of humanity at the Tower of Babel. It's about the trials and tribulations of God trying to relate to an entire world. And then we go from that wide-angle view to a zoom lens. The story zooms in and we have Abram. We have one guy and his family in a very particular time, at a very particular place, but for no particular reason. And God chooses here. This small, particular man becomes the focal point of the entire story of creation continuing to unfold in Genesis. That is a strange move. Consider, all three major world religions that we have today are rooted in the story of this one man and his family, and for no known reason. He did nothing to set himself apart that we know of. This sprint to the particular is what suddenly happens here, and it's worth considering. I read some commentary this week uh, from a writer named R.R. Reno. Uh, that said something about this newly narrowed focus that I liked. It said this, Only now, with a shift of focus from the global and universal to the narrowly tribal in particular, does the Bible reveal the true nature of redemption. God's plan is universal in scope. It sets about to redeem the entire cosmos, but the plan is not universal in method or means. Abraham, 
a particular head of a particular household is called to live in a particular way in a particular place. This divine plan injects a new possibility into the flow of history rather than acting over or upon humanity from the outside. It's a weird move. As strange as it might seem, this particularity is one of the great themes of our faith. That the God of the cosmos, the creator of peace in the midst of the cosmic chaos we talked about last week, doesn't just deal with all of the universe, but is also this granular. That this is not a story of a distant God judging the desperate offerings of a minuscule and meaningless humanity. We're not dealing with a deity hidden from sight with no real connection to the dirt we walk on. This God we serve is more concerned with how we little humans treat each other than grand shows of devotion and piety. The, the gospel text you heard earlier from Matthew 9, 13 says, Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We have a God who calls forth the unqualified and undeserving, a God who makes promises to one unimportant person and changes history through that point. Again in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Wow. That's an absurd sentiment for the creator of all things to express. But for Abram, I mean, who wouldn't want that deal? Talk about having the biggest kid on the playground stand behind you when all the bullies are around. That's an incredible thing to get promised from God. It's an incredible thing to believe. I will bless whoever blesses you. I will curse whoever curses you. It's an awe-inspiring idea that God would look after and care for and participate in this little life of this one individual person. And yet that is the claim. This is where the story goes. And it goes from here and culminates, we as Christians, we believe in the incarnation of God himself. God becomes a small and particular enough to live one human life. Now that doesn't mean that this is all about me as one particular human, right? We do well to remember that, yes, God does work through the minutia, but it's not to that end in and of itself. This is good news for Abram. He's going to be blessed. He's going to be a great nation. It's good news that Abram, uh, that God is seeking to bless him. But that's not the end of the equation, and that's where I want to go to tonight. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I have lost the fourth page of my uh, notes. <laughs> awesome. There they are. That was a close one. It's going to be a real cliffhanger till next week. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blesses in order for you to be a blessing. God works at the infinitesimal so that it might change the infinite. This calling of Abram begins the ongoing story of a God who gets real small so that the whole world 
may be changed through it. This is a deeply important truth to hold in the front of our minds because it runs counter to our very nature. It runs counter to mine. We are all at least, I think, or maybe I'm just projecting myself on you here, and I'm sorry, I think we're all a bit narcissistic. I think ultimately we approach our lives like we are the featured story and everyone else are side characters, right? It's not hard to think that the world is going well or the world is going poorly based on what is happening to me. In some weird way, I'd like to think that everyone else's stories start and stop when I enter or leave the scene. Have you ever gone back to some place that you used to live and you used to be very connected to and be utterly amazed that they just kept going without you? Because I'm the center of this narrative, right? And because we are like this, it is easy to think that our blessings are an ends unto themselves. I mean, what higher purpose could there be for God and this world than our hero getting what they need and want? My blessing is an end unto itself. And in that world, my faith gets very privatized. It's about how I'm doing. Now, I do believe that God wants good things for us. I think God wants us to thrive. I think God wants us to have meaning and purpose in this world. And I, when I say God wants good things for you, I'm not talking about Jesus wants you to have a private jet, jet televangelist style. I'm not a televangelist or I'm a phenomenally unsuccessful one. But I do believe God is in the blessing business. That every good and perfect gift comes from God's hand. But I don't believe we are blessed for the sake of being blessed. And I think we see this here in Genesis. And it's something we must always hold on to. Abram is blessed so that every family on earth may be blessed through him. So we are blessed to be a blessing. You are blessed to be a blessing to others. And this is more, I know it, we tend to talk about this in regards to money. This is more than just money, though certainly it's not less. But if I am a person who happens to have my health, I should be using my health to advocate for and care for those who are not in that same position. If I am living a relatively safe life, that is a blessing, and I should leverage that for those who are in the path of violence and danger. If I have a platform and a voice, then I should stand for those that do not and cannot speak for themselves. I spend my blessings, I spend my connections for their isolation, my influence for their powerlessness. If you were in the room on Wednesday night and you remember the little quadrant thing we were talking about, um, it won't make sense if you weren't, but if you were there and we were talking about the paradox of human thriving, we use our authority that's been given to help others in their vulnerability. Yes, God is in the blessing business, but it is a family business, and we are God's heirs. Like the one who created us, we are called to take whatever power, whatever privilege, and whatever means are at our disposal to bless our neighbors. This is why you have been blessed, and you have been blessed. In whatever way that is, you've been blessed to bless others. That's our call. That's what God does in this world. We love as we were first loved. 
by God who created all and yet is still somehow connected to our mundane little lives, our tragedies, our victories, our mountaintops and our valleys. By God who took what was at God's disposal and used it instead to bless us. God is with us and God blesses us. And the world should be a better, more loving, more gracious, and more just place because of that. Let's pray.